This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, and today I have a very special podcast for you. Episode two in a new series, Exploring Payroll Connectivity. In today's episode, I talk with Matt Gomes, GM of Consumer Lending and Banking at Argyle, and John Katz, VP Client Development at Amount. In today's episode, we talk all about lending. We talk about how lenders are starting to use payroll data in lending, finding new opportunities to leverage this lower cost real-time access to payroll data, and how that unlocks a whole new set of opportunities that were previously out of reach. It was a great episode, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Okay, so I'm very happy to be joined for this episode by Matt Gomes and Jonathan Katz. Um, I want to do some quick introductions. So Matt, why don't you go first? Can you um, tell us a little bit about your role and your background in the industry? Yeah, absolutely, Alex. Thanks so much for having me on the uh, having me on the podcast. Uh, so Matt Gomes, I lead uh, the consumer lending and banking lines of business here at Argyle. I've been with the company for um, going on a year at this point, but I'm actually a former client, so I've known the team for about two and a half years. Liked the software enough that I left the lending space, and now I'm on the more tech side of fintech. Uh, but spent the prior kind of seven, seven and a half years of my career uh, in U.S. consumer lending. I'm most recently in Opportunity Financial, and before that was at Avant. I also know a lot of the amount folks as well. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, and that is a perfect segue to uh, Jonathan Katz. Jonathan, can you give us a quick introduction to yourself and to Amount? So, uh, John Katz, I'm the uh, VP of Client Development here at Amount. Uh, so, I've actually been with the company for just over a year, but came via acquisition of Linear Financial Technologies. So, been in this space for about six years, uh, helping banks and other financial institutions digitize their, their lending operations in small business and consumer. Prior to that, I spent over a decade on Wall Street as a bank analyst and investor. So, you know, playing with uh, in the banking space, uh, you know, knowing the the teams, knowing the strategy, understanding, you know, the markets and then the reactions accordingly. That's really where I spend most of my time. And then, uh, in terms of amount, you know, we help clients uh, rapidly modernize and digitize uh, with origination software for consumer, small business, and embedded finance lending. So, really focused on banks ranging in size from, you know, sort of your nationals, regional, super regionals, and then, uh, you know, some smaller community banks as well. Uh, so looking forward to the conversation and thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, let's jump into it. So, um, you know, John, I want to start with you. I mean, I think before we get into the specifics around payroll connectivity and payroll data and what that's all going to look like, I'd just love to get your thoughts on just kind of a level set for where we are with lending. I mean, I, as you referenced, uh, Amount does a tremendous amount of work helping banks and credit unions in the U.S. digitize their lending processes, their operations, and just sort of preparing themselves to compete in this new post-fintech environment that we're all adapting to. Can you sort of characterize what you see as some of the big priorities right now from banks as it relates to to lending? Like what are they focused on? What are the what are the things that are top of the list right now? Yeah, you know, I think customer experience, both for the branch and self-service, uh, for for both, you know, consumers and small business, that's really top of mind right now. I think the financial services industry is really uh, you know, understanding that these these consumers, or whether they be uh, you know, 
consumer borrowers or, you know, consumers who are small business owners are really used to that sort of Apple and Amazon experience that they see in their everyday lives. And they want to see that in their financial lives as well. So banks are really trying to reach their customers how they want, where they want, when they want, right? Sort of that, you know, to be a little bit cliche there. And I think that's taking shape in, in a bunch of different ways, whether that be, you know, partnering with someone like us to help them create that end-to-end experience, using, you know, platforms like ours and others as components of that. You're starting to see banks get really sort of innovative in terms of, you know, creating their own enterprise layers for, uh, you know, customer interfaces across their whole enterprise. So I think that's where they're spending a lot of time, right? Aside from the sort of macro environment that everyone's dealing with now collectively. And I think what what they really are, are, are thinking about even more, um, you know, sort of deeper beyond sort of that high level customer experience is, you know, how exactly do they reach their customers? And that goes a little bit deeper into beyond the sort of traditional lending, right? So like, you know, customer walks into the branch, customer went, goes to the website, they apply for, an, for a credit product. What the banks are really looking to do is, is be part of that payments ecosystem, really be part of that embedded finance experience. That's really still emerging. That's really still being defined by the market, exactly what that will look like. But I think those are really the focuses right now uh, based on what we're seeing. I think those are the two sort of right areas to focus on, right? Because on the one hand, there's just seemingly this recognition that the the underlying processes at banks that drive the manufacturing of lending products, right? Realistically, like what it takes to actually manufacture a loan and get it into a customer's hands, that they're not well designed for a digital era, right? And so it does seem like, and I know Amount works on this every day with clients, sort of rebuilding the components that go into the manufacturing of loans so that they can fit within these new digital processes. But to your point, the other side of that is recognizing on the part of banks that you know, now that we have sort of modernized our manufacturing process, we also need to think about distribution differently. And, you know, obviously banks have huge legacy infrastructure with branches and digital banking and advertising with lead aggregators and trying to drive volume themselves. But it does seem like sort of a large scale shift we're seeing is this move towards embedded finance and kind of just putting lending wherever it needs to go. So I do like the idea of sort of splitting up what banks are focused on into almost sort of the manufacturing side and the distribution side, both of which are are changing pretty fast. Matt, I'm curious maybe if you can chime in with your perspective. I mean, obviously you come from a lending background before you joined uh, Argyle and now doing what you do. I know you work with a lot of companies like Amount to talk about what a good sort of modern lending strategy looks like. What, from your perspective, are banks focused on? What are they worried about? It's a really great question. And, and, it's important before answering directly to contextualize it a little bit. I think it depends heavily on where, you know, a given financial institution typically operates in the credit spectrum, you know, would say, particularly in this environment, right? So you have rising delinquencies, pretty high inflation, uh, past credit performance is not as good of a predictor for future credit performance as it is when, when things are a bit more normalized. I would say in, in general terms, Financial institutions that are focused on the kind of prime plus segment. So I'm going to define that. Everyone defines it slightly differently. I'm going to define that as a 720, maybe a 725 FICO and up. Anyone who fits that general area of the landscape, they're really, really focused on how to intelligently manage risk. And by that, I mean how to not make broad credit cuts because it really, really reduces the total addressable market that those financial institutions can you know help and go after 
And what I mean by that is, you know, in, in an environment like this, you see a lot of folks say, you know, that used to be willing to underwrite down to a 650, they tighten up to maybe a 700. And it's just a very quick way of updating their underwriting policy and, and doing something like that. That actually has a ripple effect. So if we ignore the prime plus corner of the market and talk about everybody else who's really serving that, you know, near prime, maybe non-prime customer, there's this cascading waterfall where folks who used to qualify for that prime plus loan are moving a little bit down the FICO spectrum, but not from a credit score perspective, really from an institution who's willing to underwrite them perspective. And so folks that are that are really focused there, what they're trying to do right now is counterintuitive as it seems, is just maximize efficiency because they're, they're seeing this huge surge in demand for folks that, that wouldn't have gone to them uh, who no longer qualify for maybe a lower cost product. And, and so you know, on, on the one hand, at the top of the market, you've got folks that are trying to come up with new, I think, more tailored ways of managing credit risk. And on the other hand, if you're focused on kind of that, that central pillar, maybe even down to the non-prime, they're really, really focused on how do we do things more efficiently. They don't have to quite worry about credit risk yet. That'll come a little later. Not to predict the future entirely, but having having gone through it before, you know, my expectation is that's, you know, six, maybe 12 months away further down the, the FICO spectrum. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, and um, predicting the future is what we do here. We mostly get it wrong on this podcast, but um, we do we do attempt to do that. So I appreciate that view. And I mean, I think it's really interesting, right? I mean, people who are listening to this can't see my hands as I'm doing this, but it's really talking about shifting that demand curve as the credit outlook changes, right? And so I, I think you're exactly right in that there is a a segment of consumers that are used to maybe being able to work with different providers or just get a different experience and they're now needing to get credit elsewhere. And, you know, I mean, one thing that I think is a truism, but is very true about lending is that um, demand for credit doesn't go away, right? I mean, the conditions change, the availability of capital changes, risk appetites change, but, you know, people need credit, businesses need credit, and that doesn't really change. So as that demand shifts around, I think it does have some really interesting ripple effects. I wanted to ask, uh, Matt, maybe as a follow-up to you, in the last episode that we did, we were talking to uh, Shmulek at uh, Argyle. We talked about this transition that we've been going through uh, over the last really like 50 years in terms of where we look to get insights to drive those risk decisions that you're talking about. Historically, a lot of the data that we've used and a lot of the insights that we've fed into that process have really, for obvious reasons, come from the credit report. That was one of the first sort of programmatically available sources of insight into consumers' behavior that could drive lending decisions. And I think one thing that maybe is underappreciated about the history of that is that we've had decades, and it sounds like both of you have been working at banks that have have done this in the past. I mean, we've spent decades basically squeezing as much sort of predictive value out of that data set as we can. And one of the things that that came up in my conversation with Schmulek that I'd love to get your take on is some of the data that's contained within the credit report is really well suited to making certain types of decisions, right? When you're looking at what is a consumer's willingness to pay over a long period of time, well, there's good data in the credit bureau that can help sort of inform that decision. But I also think just because we haven't had access historically to a lot of other data, we've stretched the credit file in ways where maybe it wasn't always intended to be stretched that way, or it's not best suited to answer certain questions. And this is getting into things like 
verifying income and looking at the stability of a consumer's income or just sort of other indicators of their sort of financial performance. And the reason this is all very relevant and the sort of the purpose of this whole series that we're doing is that the data sets that are now available to lenders are changing. And obviously we have open banking. We now have this sort of new world of payroll data. And I'm curious, Matt, if you can sort of characterize specifically from a lending perspective, what are some of the gaps that have existed that maybe we've papered over a little bit in lending traditionally using more traditional sources of data that can be better addressed by by payroll data? It's the reason our industry exists, and it's the reason it's you know, becoming more mature over time. So I'll, I'll, I'll start on the credit report and kind of credit bureau side. For as much valuable data as exists there, there's also kind of this inherent flaw in that model in that credit bureaus and therefore the scores calculated on the data you know, stored at credit bureaus, it relies almost entirely on furnishers of that data as defined by FICRA uh, and consumers actually to review their reports and catch errors. And so yeah, I think it was as recently as last year, right? The FTC published a, a report that effectively said that one in five credit reports has a material error on it. So right off the bat, you know, that's 20% of the, the US adult population where there is something materially wrong in the data set that would be used traditionally, right? And, and that's obviously a problem. The way I think about traditional credit reports is they tell a really interesting story, but it's a very narrow part of the overall picture for a given consumer, right? I think, to, to borrow your words, willingness to pay over time. It's really, really good at doing that. I think in the aggregate, it's pretty good at ranking risk. Nine times out of 10, a 750 is going to outperform a 650, right? If you're just looking at FICA. But there's also a lot in there. And again, I'm going to go back to the environment we're currently in that's just flat out missed. And the example I always go to here is just credit card payments, the nature of how credit cards are structured. So let's say that someone, you know, just a consumer A, has lost their job. Uh, they don't have a ton of savings. So you know, less than half of the country can cover a $1,000 unexpected expense. But a lot of those people that can't cover the expense have access to credit cards. They could spend money today without having any source of income, because that's obviously not going to get reported to the institutions that extended the credit cards. For 30 days, they could be spending money. Uh, then there's a 25-day period after the statement period closes before that payment is even due. After the 25-day period, there's a five-day grace period as required by the CARD Act, which absolutely should exist. And then after that, there's another 30-day delay before the financial institution who holds the debt on that credit card reports it to the Bureau. That means end-to-end, -end, you could be looking at a three-month gap in someone's ability to repay credit they could be applying for right now. And if I were lending still, that would terrify me, given the environment that we're in, right? You have right. slightly rising unemployment, not you know, not crazy spikes like what we saw in, in 08, 09 or anything like that. But certainly inflationary pressures on consumers are, are driving significantly higher card balances, even exceeding pre-pandemic levels, uh, which I would not have bet on this quickly. And so, you know, I think the one of the really big gaps that employment and income data can solve for and payroll connectivity can solve for is confirming that someone is still able to meet even their existing obligations before you consider whether or not to extend additional credit. And I, you know, I think another thing that you touched on, and this is 
This is something that's less applicable in my mind for a lot of salary workers, unless they're heavily commission based, but looking at something like income stability, right? And I think a, a direct comparison between, you know, open banking and, and like the data sets that are available via Plaid, uh, which is super, super valuable data, by the way. But one of the gaps there is it's generally very hard to get a full 365-day picture of what income looks like over time. I think a lot of lenders tend to use 45 days, maybe 90 days if they can get it, and impute what income is from that. And one of the beautiful things about payroll connectivity is that it can give you a complete look back for as long as that individual has been employed at that employer to help you normalize for some of the seasonal changes in income. Or, you know, again, addressing something like, uh, you know, someone whose majority of their income is sourced via commission, right? So I think it tells a much more complete story by stitching together these different sources than relying on on a credit score alone. And again, just thinking about the macro environment, I really, really think that kind of getting to that more complete picture, I wouldn't even say it's a complete picture with all the data sources we have today. There's, there's going to be more you know, more that kind of come to the forefront in the coming years, but doing everything in a lender's power to get to that, you know, as complete picture as possible is really kind of the key in my mind. No, absolutely. Well, and I, I think, I mean, to, to go off the examples you gave, I mean, the, the real-time nature of the data is such a game changer, right? Because to your point about someone losing their job, I mean, we find ways to stretch in the credit bureau credit score world to try to account for that, right? So like a thing people are often surprised by is, oh, I didn't know that having a bunch of inquiries on my credit report over a short period of time hurts my credit score. Why Why would that be the case? And the answer, if you sort of untangle everything, is that that's really the only way to detect desperation of a consumer who might have lost their job or who has a need for credit but the impact on the performance of their existing loans hasn't shown up yet. So it's this weird like contortion of the credit bureau and the credit score to account for exactly that risk that you're mentioning. And the only way they could do it was looking at inquiries. And so it's, it is interesting how much we've sort of bent the existing data sets and models almost out of shape from what they were supposed to do in order to account for these things that we just didn't have visibility into. So I think that's you know, a really good point. And one thing I would add there, so you, you've jogged my memory. So that this kind of shift to digital and basically the financial system moving into the 21st century, if you will, great example of that is clusters of inquiries. Credit bureaus weren't prepared to handle that. So when you had the rise of like the credit karmas and lending trees of the world, and you could say, hey, I want to see what loans I do qualify for so I can comparison shop and, and find the right product for myself. It took years for bureaus to kind of catch up and go, oh, actually, these 20 inquiries that happened within, you know, 100 milliseconds of each other, that's really only one inquiry because that person's looking for one product. Uh, and so that, you know, everyone introduced a, a slightly different metric and you can look at both to account for that. But if you think about that digital shift, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that only relying on, on credit bureau data is it's becoming harder and harder is really the, you know, what I'm trying to get at there. I think that's exactly right, right? And I, I'm guessing you, uh, we've all probably had this experience. I certainly have of like, I'm doing like a kind of home improvement project in my house and like the perfect tool would be this other thing, but I don't know where that is because it's in the garage and I lost it and it's gone. So I get the tool that could kind of do the job, but like, I don't know if you guys have done this, but I've definitely had the experience of like 
accidentally putting a hole in my wall or doing something because I was using the wrong tool, even though I knew better and I knew there was probably a better tool over there. So I do think this idea of like being able to right size the role of the different data sources and models to what they're really good at and giving just a bigger toolkit to lenders makes a lot of sense. And, you know, John, I wanted to go to you on this actually, because at Amount, I know one of the things you guys do is basically work with lenders to say, where do we incorporate all of this great data? I mean, I know having been in the shoes of someone trying to sell data and other services to banks in the past, they're just inundated with everyone has like a better mousetrap and another like, I have this new data source, this new thing you need to try. You know, Argyle obviously uh, is one of those companies, you know, out there kind of pitching their services. And I know that banks oftentimes feel overwhelmed about, okay, like, what does this do? How does it fit into the stack of things I'm already doing? Operationally, how do I incorporate it into my workflow? How do I think about like least cost routing and where this data fits in? So when you think about payroll data and you think about the conversations that you've had with banks and other lenders that are starting to think about this data, like, where do they see it fitting in? How are they evaluating it? What gets them excited? You know, we've said a few times the shift to digital, right? So, you know, the, the way I've described it, and this is not original by any means, right? This is actually a generational shift going from analog to digital for many large financial institutions and, and even mid-sized ones. Mm-hmm. What comes with that is they're still in a traditional mindset in terms of how to evaluate risk and how to underwrite risk. So what we've done is you know, with a sort of analytical mind frame and sort of an insights mind mindset, you know, help them advance and say, okay, well, this is the way you do things when the world is manual and you underwrite a, you know, a $5 million deal. That's a middle market deal that you may still do fairly manually, right? There's some judgment there, but you don't want to do that for the $50,000 consumer or small business deal. So we're helping them, you know, understand what data sets are available, how to use those data sets to make a better decision make a more efficient decision, but not take on any more risk, but maybe approve more customers without adding any risk and really using a model that's been proprietary internally. Banks have leveraged that um, when they've deployed our platform as well. So it's not just a, a, you know, the box of software, I like to say. There's also insights as well. That's exactly the way that they think about you know incorporating payroll data, right? And I think what, what the thing that gets them really excited is when you can explain to them how leveraging a traditional mindset of how do we use payroll data? How do we use verification of payroll data in a way that's not like too cutting edge or too aggressive for them? That's what gets them really excited. So if I go back to like the first job that I had out of college, if I may, right, I was at a mortgage bank, right? And in the middle of the mortgage, you know, boom, we're originating loans, but, you know, we would have done a lot more, probably a lot more would have gone bad had it not been for the fact that we had to do a verification of income. And with a verification of income in 2004, was someone at our mortgage bank, which would sell all of its originations. We literally had a few people dialing for dollars. They would call the employer that was stated on the on the the documentation and they would verify that income, right? That that slowed everything down. So if you tell a bank, well, we we can actually get rid of this concept verification of income, right? There's no reason in the world why a 1099 worker, a W-2 worker, someone who is documented using a payroll system, you could very easily leverage the RL system to to get all that rich data in a very automated way, that's extremely powerful to the bank because it drives high levels of automation. And it's not too aggressive in terms of sort of a modern approach or an aggressive approach. Now, there's obviously always going to be exceptions. But if you give them, if you say to them, hey, look, this, this is a great way to you know evaluate and add in rigor around the ability to repay, 
they're going to be happy from a regulatory standpoint. They're going to be happy from a creditor risk standpoint. So I think that's where it's really important to understand. It's it's not always how you can be cutting edge. It's how you can actually help the banks advance into the world where they are, you know, driving a lot, uh, you know, a lot higher levels of automation. Right? They're improving that manufacturing process, like like you stated before, Alex. And then the distribution of those products becomes a whole lot easier as well, because the whole end to end flow is a whole lot easier. And it's not aggressive, right? It's not black box. The, 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 the one thing that financial institutions hate the most is that when you can't explain the decision that you're making and how you make it, there's accountability. It's very easy to understand. And the, the value proposition is extremely obvious. And that's why, you know, we, we've, we've had a great experience, you know, you know leveraging and working Argyle uh, integrated into our process on an end-to-end basis. One of the challenges uh, to your point is that... Um, banks are from a lending manufacturing perspective, they are conservative, right? And that's not just from a risk perspective, it's from a compliance perspective, it's from a brand reputation perspective. But, you know, so much of the value of these things is just, hey, look, it takes you X amount of units of effort to manufacture a loan today. That's silly. That's a loss for you. That's too much work for your customers, right? I mean, I've been through multiple lending experiences where they're like, yeah, we'd love it if you could take copies of the last six months of pay stubs and uh, send those, like email those to us or put those in our little um, sort of Dropbox file system that we have. And it's like, are you serious? I mean, I I just, that that level of work, not only does it kind of destroy your margins in a lot of cases, depending on what type of lending you're doing, but it, it's just such a negative signal to the customers that you want to attract. So like removing that and just automating that makes makes all the sense in the world. You mentioned compliance and explainability, and I, I, Matt, I wanted to ask you about that as well. I mean, you guys obviously work with a lot of um, sort of lenders, including ones that are are kind of conservative by nature. How do you talk to them about the compliance aspect of using this new data source? Because I, I think the default reaction that you get from a lot of banks is uh, anything new is a compliance risk, just like by default. And obviously, that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of nuance there, but like, how do you sort of have that conversation? Yeah, I. Uh, it's a conversation we're very familiar with, John. I'm sure <laughs> you're very familiar with having this conversation with any data source that's you know a part of the platform. So before I answer it, I always like to lead off with a disclaimer uh, that this is not legal advice, and I am not a lawyer. However, thank you for I saying am, that. Yes, yes, I am super, super familiar. Uh, with this corner of the world, because my start in financial technology was direct mail marketing, you really have to understand Ficker well to do that well. So, you know, again, going to add a little bit of context to answer the compliance question, right? I think a lot of people by default assume that the credit decision is the entirety or the entire process of the underwriting decision. And that simply is not the case. The credit decision is a very, very important part of underwriting, but by no means is it the only component. I think typical underwriting waterfall from my experience, and John, if if you hear anything different, please jump in and let me know. Generally, folks like to run business rules first, so self-reported things like self-reported income. Do you live in a state that I operate in? Are you over the age of majority? So on and so forth. If the consumer doesn't check all of those boxes, they'll just decline for business rules. That way they, they can manage data costs, right? You don't have to pull credit. You don't have to do bank verification. You don't have to verify income and employment. Mm-hmm. Generally, the second step is the credit decision. 
And the reason for that is kind of twofold. One, there's no consumer friction, right? So you can generally pull credit in a waterfall, pull it in pieces, manage data costs down. Once you've pulled credit, then you can offer effectively a firm. It's a firm offer of credit. That's what you're extending. You're saying, hey, I'll approve you for up to X at a rate that looks like this, assuming that we can verify everything else you told me, right? It is the financial institution's right to go verify other things on that application. And you know, you're you're minimizing kind of data costs, you're also minimizing customer friction. The other piece that you're you're kind of optimizing for by taking that approach is once you've shown the terms, the person may say, hey, you know what, I actually don't want this product. And then you don't have to pull anything else. Right. So that's that's generally why it's done that way. Where Argyle really fits into this process is that last step, right? It's really the verification stage of the underwriting decision, not the credit decision. And you can absolutely, as a financial institution, use consumer permission data to, you know, decision as part of the verification stage. If consumer A says, I make $100,000 a year, you pull credit, you're like, yep, consumer A looks pretty good. And then you verify their income and it turns out they make $25,000. You can say, you know what, that offer that I showed you earlier, we're not comfortable doing that anymore. We're going to decline you. So the, the conversation is always around breaking that underwriting decision into the, the requisite components and just making it really, really clear. This is where we fit in. This is how you should be using us. So that, that is how I generally answer it. John, I know you guys also work with a number, a number of banks that we don't necessarily work with. Is that generally aligned with your experience as well? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's spot on. You know, it, it's a, and you use the term waterfall that really echoes with our with our our clients to, that they understand you can you can do this in in sort of staged environment that actually becomes very cost effective um, it actually becomes very um, experience effective as well because you don't need to put every customer through every process but that's exactly right Matt we couldn't agree with you more Alex I think you also briefly asked as part of that question just kind of impact on on this data set in terms of fair lending. Uh, yeah. as well versus just yeah. necessarily fair credit reporting act and so i'll briefly answer that as well i think in general and this absolutely applies to to rl's data set and, but really in general all consumer permission data is going to level the playing field more than it used to be simply by nature of we're giving financial institutions the ability to verify a metric that formerly would have been cost prohibitive to verify so calculate if, if you wanted to include payment to income or debt to income as a component of your risk matrix for, say, I don't know, the riskiest three deciles, the only way you could do that reliably historically was either to pay a ton of money for the data, which you're not going to do for smaller ticket loans, or do it by hand, which becomes very, very expensive. To John's point, like in mortgage underwriting, the most common way to do it was to literally call. And today, depending on where you are in the FICO spectrum, the most common way to do it is to say, bring in two pay stubs, and then you're paying two different people to look at those pay stubs and decide, are they real or not? And so I think by, by making access to the data a lot easier, you know, what we've really been able to do as far as fair lending goes is say, hey, we're going to verify, if I'm the institution, we're going to verify income on the riskiest 50% of customers. And what that's ultimately going to do is it means I can accurately price them and accurately assign them in my risk matrix based on something beyond only using FICO as a, as a cutoff. So absolutely 
adds value there for the consumer. And in terms of producing, I would say, more accurate lending decisions, I always hesitate to say better lending decisions, uh, but I think more accurate because you're able to use more kind of axes in that matrix. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, I mean, again, not, (laughs) I'm not a lawyer either, not legal advice, not a commentary on like the purpose of regulation, but I do think accuracy sits at the bottom of fairness, right? I mean, what we really want is for everyone to get priced for loans in a way that's commensurate with the risk that they actually pose. And so more data is super useful in that way. And I I think that, you know, it's funny, one of the examples I always think about, because I was talking with Shmulek on a previous episode about the sort of challenge of building some of this stuff when, you know, a lot of the folks who work in and around fintech live in New York, San Francisco, we have these great white collar jobs and make a lot of money. Like there's a, a difficulty sometimes in building for consumer segments that really need better lending innovation and need more sort of data and more access to lending, but that are living different lives and have sort of different sets of circumstances. One of the examples that I've always enjoyed that's kind of a very simple one, but it speaks to the need for this type of data and nuances just talking to an auto lender and they were saying that the sort of near prime and non-prime customer segment that they serve, one of the questions that they used to ask on their application that they stopped asking was, what's your annual income? And the reason they stopped asking it was that uh, a surprising number of folks would fill in $0 for their annual income, which obviously would trigger all of these problems with the credit decisioning and the workflow and the underwriting would lead to all of these sort of confusing interactions. And what they figured out was, for a large segment of the consumers that they were underwriting, those consumers are paid hourly, right? Or paid by individual shifts. And so when they were asked, what's your annual income? They said, I don't get paid annually. So zero, right? And obviously that's not what was intended, but it kind of goes back even to the point, Matt, you were making about the lumpiness of someone's income and the sort of nuances that it takes to understand what someone's actual income is, that's not always as straightforward as we might assume when we're designing these applications, you know, just sitting in an office building these um, these underwriting flows. Couldn't agree more. I can tell you actually, um, just along those lines, last week, we've been working on, I don't want to say income normalization. I'd more describe it as great if your year-to-date salary or year-to-date pay is X, how does that translate to you know annual, monthly, seven monthly, so on and so forth, just to align with pay schedules? And looked at our calculation and then compared it to approximately you know twenty pay stubs, and all twenty pay stubs were completely different. So we were able to normalize that behind the scene. That again, if you think about verifying income on more people or producing a more accurate decision on more people, honestly, it's it's just impossible to do that without leveraging a programmatic approach. But yeah, that really resonates with me, having having just done that by hand. It's a thing. And I mean, I, Jonathan, the other thing I wanted to ask you is more on the consumer side, right? Because we've been talking about this more from like a back office automation perspective. But I mean, I know Amount spends a lot of time being very thoughtful on the user experience and the friction that you're imposing on users and like what that process looks like. And a a conversation I know has been happening for a while around open banking is, okay, so where can we pull open banking in? And like, what is the impact on the friction to the customer and asking them to log into their bank account? And like, what does that look like? And when in the process are they willing to do that? 
payroll is a little different. It's similar in that we're asking for credentials. We're getting the customer to opt in. It's not like checking a box and giving permission to have your credit file pulled. It's a little bit different. In my conversation with Shmulek, he pointed out actually that a lot of payroll credentials are really more employment credentials these days in terms of like if you work at you know Uber or you work at Domino's or whatever, like you probably know your credentials for logging in because that's the system you use to pick up shifts and to manage your hours and to clock in and to clock out. So the credentials are fairly well known, but it is a little bit of a different experience for the consumer. What's been your experience like integrating that into these underwriting experiences, these lending experiences for consumers? At the end of the day, you you said it, right? It's all about friction and flexibility and and where what making it as easy for the customer as possible. But I think the the open banking concept, the leveraging payroll data concept, everything that we've been talking about here, what that allows the financial institutions to do, and obviously you need the right platform to be able to deploy this, is have that flexibility to weave in a particular component of the experience where you want and where it's most useful, right? So the concept of step up authentication, and that can be the matrix concept that can be across risk spectrums, that can be across product sets. We're much more willing to overlook certain things when it comes to smaller balance credit cards that we might be more strict on when it comes to larger balance unsecured installment loans. So I think the ability to you know drive that step up authentication, that friction where friction is needed, you know, helps deliver that that optimal customer experience. It improves decisioning outcomes. It f- prevents fraud, which is obviously a big uh, you know topic of conversation. So if I have a 800 FICO, just to, to use that FICO as an example, 800 FICO customer, everything in the history, all the third party data checks out. The things that I'm doing on a basic level from a KYC perspective, from a fraud perspective, and a credit risk perspective, hey, maybe I don't want to put that customer through that incremental friction. I most certainly don't want to ask them to upload any PDFs, and that would include a pay stub, which they would then have to go get from their credentials, right? For, but but if I do want to ask someone to upload additional verification, I do want to verify that person's income. This is a borderline decision for whatever reason, right? Without getting into credit policy discussions and what that nitty gritty might be, I can actually make that tactical decision on the spot to say, well, this is something where I'm going to want to put the customer through that additional friction from an ability to repay standpoint, from a fraud prevention standpoint. If you now can provide me credentials to a employer uh, payroll data, and I can now actually pull the Argyle data, that's doing really two things, right? One, it's, it's telling me that a person is who they say they are. It's another data point in that verification process. But then it's also getting me that that critical decision, um, that critical information as part of the credit underwriting decision to make sure that that this person has that ability to repay based on the standards that I'm setting forth. So it's really, you know, again, like having that flexibility, that's what the banks are really looking for at this juncture because what they really understand is that not every customer is the same. And at the opposite ends of the spectrum, you have a fraudster where you want to throw as many things as you can at them to basically make them drop off because there are still FCRA compliance, you know, figure compliance concerns when it comes to suspected fraud. You can't just outright decline someone because you think something's happening. But you might want to give them a little bit more work, a little more homework to get through exactly. and kind of a little bit more friction. Yeah. Let, let them go find, you know, a, a soft spot to, to penetrate a different fortress elsewhere, right? Um, to, you know, your best customer where they've SSO'd from their existing online banking, they have a huge relationship with the bank. Why would we want to put them through anything but, hey, you want this credit product? We know you're a good credit. Here it is, right? And you want to have that tailored experience. And it goes back to the original point, which is 
you want to give customers that Apple and Amazon experience. I know a lot of people are expressing concern about Apple and Amazon coming into banking. That's a whole separate discussion. That's not my concern. My concern is the experience component of it. This is what everyone wants. So if you can actually give them a tailored experience, and it doesn't sound like asking them to provide payroll verification and that login is tailored, but it is, right? Anything that you can then, you know, you know customize a journey for a customer and make their experience better for, for who they are and what they're applying for based on their profile, that's going to be a win with the customer every time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think as we sort of look forward into, okay, so we have a lot of work in banking to do to just kind of catch up on some of these things, right? Have that Amazon Apple type experience, you know, modernize a lot of these backend manufacturing processes that are just deeply inefficient. You know, Matt, to your point, maybe bring more data in and kind of level the playing field and make this fairer. The other thing I wanted to ask about, and Matt, maybe I'll direct this to you to start, is where are we going next? And and the reason I ask is that anytime we have these sort of unlocks of this new sort of programmatic access to a type of data that we haven't had before, we start in a reasonable place by saying, okay, well, we don't need to look at inquiries for measuring someone's financial stability. We can just actually know what their financial stability is in real time. So let's update that. Let's update our mental model and do this smarter. But the next thing you start to think about is, okay, well, what could we build today? What kind of lending product or experience could we build that maybe we just couldn't do before, right? Like in a world where we only had credit data and it was only updated every 30 days, this was just not feasible. But now that we have this ongoing programmatic access, consumer permission to this data that gives us a really good view into like affordability and income and stability in real time, moment to moment, what can we build around that? I, I know it's early, but like, what are some interesting examples or sort of lines of thinking that you've seen that you're excited by? To me, what I'm most excited by is truly matching every consumer with the product that makes sense for that consumer. And I, we've talked on it or around it a few times. You're thinking about kind of willingness to pay and affordability, right? And it's a component of underwriting that, again, historically, it's been really, really expensive to get that right, unless you're doing something like a mortgage, because you know, the economics on a mortgage support it. The reason I always focus on that is, the, at least in my mind, the number one kind of trap that a consumer can fall into is overextending by, say, maybe inflating their income a little bit. They think, oh, everything's going smoothly right now. I'm not planning for six months from now. I'm planning for right now. I want to take that vacation, so I'm going to... Know, open this new credit card or take out a loan, whatever it is. And because historically, you know, the industry hasn't been able to verify income and, and really look at affordability through that lens, I think we've put consumers in a tricky position where if they do get out over their skis and then they start falling behind, it can become this very vicious cycle where someone who is a very responsible borrower for 10, 15, 20 years just gets a little bit too overextended, has one or two things happen, and suddenly you know, they, they end up in a, a, a deep subprime space, right? That it, it, it's hard to recover from that quickly. And so where, where I hope we kind of get to and, and where, you know, we're already starting to see people think about this. And again, John, you made the point perfectly. Tailoring that underwriting experience, not only at the financial institution level, but even at, at say, like a credit karma level where, you know, it's being shot to a lot of financial institutions. They can all extend, you know, different offers being able to truly personalize and tailor that to make sure that everyone is getting the right product. Yes, it's great for credit performance if I'm a lender, 
but it's also really, really good for consumers because it prevents them from ending up in these in these kind of really tough positions. So where I hope we end up and where I think we're starting to move is really that. It's being able to match every person to a product that actually fits their need. Yeah, I love that. I think that makes sense. And I mean, it's the idea that doing something that can improve a lender's credit performance is like, oh, well, that's good for the bank, but who cares? Like, actually, we all should care because better performance for lenders means consumers are taking on credit obligations that they can handle and being able to manage them responsible. So there's a there's a very important other side to that that I think is, is really important to keep in mind. John, I'm going to end the podcast with you. Along the similar lines of what I just asked Matt, I mean, I, I'm wondering if you can play a little game in terms of like, if you close your eyes and think like 10, 15 years from now, assume that like payroll connectivity becomes more of this sort of ubiquitous tool in the toolkit for lenders. And, you know, we have this data and like, you know, we, we've sort of accomplished the goal that we're working on right now. What is the market going to look like? What is lending going to look like in that sort of future state? Can you sort of prognosticate for us a little bit? Yeah, sure. I'll put a little bit of the, the futurist hat on and, and I'm sure like you said earlier, that'll be totally wrong, you know, because it, things always go. Into- John, John actually has a hat that he's putting on. You guys can't see the video, but he's like, he grabbed a hat and he's putting it on right now. So yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, chat GPT, right? AI, every, it's all the hottest rage right now. And it's, it's in the, it's consuming the discussion that we're having publicly right now. But I think with, with payroll and other transactional data readily available, you know, when I would expect to be able to integrate all that data into a predictive model and predictive models that help us you know, with loan, line sizing, product offerings, product tailoring, and account management. And maybe a little bit more of a bold suggestion would be the concept of, a, of an active application, an active credit application. Someone reaches the bank, whether that be a, a, an in-person channel, whether that be, you know, through a digital channel, that process might actually go away, right? So I think with with the sort of tools that might become available what we know about a customer when they walk into the into a branch, what we know about a customer when they're transacting online, whether it's on a financial institution's website, whether it's on some kind of e-commerce site, there will be enough intelligence to understand what that individual or business might qualify for from a credit perspective. And we can sort of be proactive in terms of applications. Now, you know, the compliance-minded people in the room who are listening to this might might be going crazy right now. What do you mean there's not going to be a credit application? Sure, we'll have a checkbox. They'll actively acknowledge and, and have the right disclosures. Sure, right? But I think the data and the ability to synthesize that data into a predictive model will be likely powerful enough for us to deliver those products much more proactively rather than sit back and wait for a customer to go actively say, I want this, right? Maybe there's never going to be an amount on a credit application again. I'm not asking for $35,000, $50,000. My models will tell me what you qualify for. And that is the offer that I'm going to make. And then with the aggregator channels and everything like that, that's going to be you know, the analytical arms race to say, where can I make the best credit judgments based on that? And that's how I'm going to win the client by by making the biggest offer, the most appropriate offer with the right product structure. So that's you know kind of where I think it, you know, we, we, we could potentially go leveraging all this rich data that that is now, you know, we see how we're we're using it a little bit more proactively, but how that 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 sort of like takes it to the next level with some of the tools that we see uh, emerging right now in in the AI space. That's a great vision of the future. I um this idea that we can have contextual streaming credit that's sort of always on, always available and is based on and you know, this goes back to what we've been talking about is based on 
data that I have opted in to share, right? So I'm completely in control. I've opted in or I've opted out. I'm sharing exactly what I want and I'm getting access seamlessly to what I need. And I, I think that brings us to the end of this, which is just that like lending is an enabling product, right? It enables people to get other things that they need. I don't think people want to go out of their way to get loans any more than they have to. So that's an awesome vision for the future. Um, we will leave it there. John, Matt, thank you so much for joining me for this. I, I learned a ton and uh, really excited for this uh, this future that we've been talking about. Great. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. If you want to hear even more insights into the past, present, and future of FinTech, be sure to check out The FinTech Factor, the podcast series where I try to figure out how FinTech companies can build sustainable differentiation in this golden age of FinTech infrastructure.